If you have your Bible, turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. When you find that passage, go ahead and stand with me as we read from God's Word together. James chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9 down to verse 11. This is James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, writing as he's carried along by the Spirit of God. And he says, Let the lowly brother... Boast in his exaltation. And let the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word this morning, that our hearts would be ready to receive what it is that you're going to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When you think back about American history, by the year 1971, the American people had walked through some really difficult social, cultural, and political changes. Um, If you think back, there was the 1960s, 1970s, there was the Civil Rights Movement that was a very difficult transition for our country to walk through uh, with riots all over the place, all all across the country. Uh, Even during that period, there was murmurs of anarchy and political revolution because of college campuses that were thinking about this Vietnam War, thinking about all of the things that were happening and protesting about these different issues, um, including the draft. Uh, We think about uh, the Roe versus Wade um, decision that was made, and then shortly right after that, the pill that was offered and the sexual revolution. All of those things happening in that same two-decade spread, the, the uh, the widespread use of LSD and psychedelic revolution, and then also then the hippie movement that happened during that period as well, starting in Haight-Ashbury in California. Now, all of those things happening, uh, all pretty much at the same time, there was, among those different changes and transitions, there was a countercultural movement, uh, later known as the Jesus Movement, or the Jesus People Movement. And... Um, Larry Estridge, in his book that I've been reading called uh, God's Forever Family, the Jesus People Movement in America, uh, he writes these words as he was reflecting on uh, when, when he saw the first um, Times magazine that had a, a, a whole page on the front page devoted to this Jesus People Movement. And this is how the writer of the Times described these people. He said that they were fresh-faced, wide-eyed young girls and earnest young men Badgering businessmen and shoppers on Hollywood Boulevard, near the Lincoln Memorial, in Dallas, in Detroit, in Wichita, witnessing for Christ with breathless expectations. Christian coffee houses have opened up in many cities, he says. A strip joint has been converted into a Christian nightclub in San Antonio, and communal Christian houses are multiplying like loaves and fishes. And he said, Bibles abound. They're everywhere. And uh, when he was talking about the people involved in this movement, this is, this is what he said about them as far as their beliefs. He said they, they have a total belief in the awesomeness and the supernaturalness of Jesus Christ. 
Not just a marvelous man who lived 2,000 years ago, but a living God who is both Savior and Judge. Their lives revolve around the necessity for intense personal relationship with that Jesus. And they act as if divine intervention guides their every moment and can be counted on to solve every problem. So they're responding to something that they saw as negative. Now, what they were responding to was this, this kind of Christianity that they saw was a, a distant, a cold kind of hypo, hypocritical kind of Christianity that they'd seen in the generation before them, an error that was of nominal Christianity, uh, meaning that it was a name only many times. They would look at maybe their parents' generation and they saw a kind of Christianity that was popular. In the 40s and 50s, they, they saw a Christianity that if you wanted to be involved in the community, if you wanted to, to be involved with the people around you and to do well at work, then you needed to be in church because that's where people were on Sundays. And so as they looked at that kind of Christianity, they wanted something different and they responded uh, to that kind of Christianity. Now, now some of the, the countercultural ideas that the hippies movement had were not bad. And there was a lot of them that were. But uh, some of them that weren't bad were, were ideas like celebrating creativity, uh, that, that all of us are creative kind of beings. Uh, the idea of even free spirits, now that could have been taken kind of far, but the idea of free spirits and, and, and doing things that, uh, that were spontaneous. Kindness was a very big part of the hippie movement. Emotional detachment from material possessions, that's something all of us could could serve well to, to experience a little bit. And even some of their modern versions of like a bohemian kind of lifestyle. Now, when you think about those different kind of concepts that were a part of the hippie movement, uh, it, was, it was contrary to the post-World War II environment, wasn't it? Uh, the post-World War II environment, as we kind of fell out of that whole experience after World War II, we wanted something that we could count on. We wanted, as Americans, something that we could experience that would be real, that was lasting, and that it was reliable. And so we began to think about our American dream in this way. We began to think of it as, as in homes and as in model families and, and as uh, solid jobs that would give us a good retirement at the end of all of it. So we began to look at those kinds of things, and this was a, a rejection of those concepts in many ways, these Jesus people movement. Now, these were some of the things that they, they touted as being very important in the movement. Uh, they were serious about genuine community, real community. And they did that by a lot of times living in the same kind of commune together, but nevertheless, they were serious about it. They were sold out for Jesus and the gospel, so much so that many people called them Jesus freaks. That's where we get the term. They didn't hesitate to put Jesus in the first place and forsake all of the earthly possessions that they had. Jesus was number one. And they were also very intentional about evangelism. That's what we saw in that, that first quotation. They were serious about sharing the gospel with those people around them. Now, this movement only lasted about a decade, but the effects of the movement are, are long-lasting. Uh, in fact, in this book, Eskridge is, is arguing that the Jesus People movement is, is very long-lasting. Um, in fact, the, uh, the CCM movement, the, or the, the scene, the Christ, contemporary Christian music scene, actually has its roots in the Jesus People movement. The reason for that is there was no venue for Christian rock music at all before this movement began. And so all of those kind of things that have really heavily shaped our understanding of, of Christianity in America now those things find their roots uh, in some degree there. Now, because of the, the weak theological foundation of the Jesus People movement, it only lasted about a decade. 
And oftentimes, some of these people that were kind of connected with it, they didn't have very good theology, and so eventually drifted off into um, cults and things like that. So now, the point of all of that, and I know many of you are probably thinking, wow, I don't know what the point of all that is. Well, I'm going to tell you what the point of it is. The point is, American culture is not necessarily God's culture, right? American culture doesn't equal God's culture. And sometimes, though, we act as though it does. Um, oftentimes, we, we, we say things like, well, if we could just get back to what things were like in the 50s, maybe not the 60s and 70s, but the 50s, if we could get back to the things that were, you know, 1776 was a good year. Maybe we could just get back there. But the truth is, in every generation, we have to analyze, we have to examine our own culture. Because as Christians, what we are to do is to live in such a way that we live in opposition to counterculture of the things around us. That is what Jesus has called us to be about. Now, that's the first point that I want us to look at this morning as we kind of begin to unpack these couple of verses is that the gospel calls for a countercultural response. The gospel calls for a countercultural response. Now, when you think about Jesus, do you think of Jesus as being a countercultural person? Do you think that he was, he was different or in opposition to the culture in which he found himself in the first century? Well, yeah, he was. He was completely counterculture. Just a couple of things that he was very countercultural about. Uh, one, Jesus broke the Sabbath regularly to heal people. Now, th- this is a point of history where the Pharisees, they would argue for hours that one could not actually untie their donkey and lead their donkey to water so that it could drink on the Sabbath because that would be considered work. One couldn't just walk down the road and haphazardly spit on the ground because that would be considered some type of work. So this whole idea of Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath completely going against the tide of what was culturally appropriate. Jesus did not align himself with the social elite. He didn't align himself with the religious elite. Instead, what did Jesus do? He regularly in our minds, he regularly ate in bars with prostitutes and swindlers. This is what Jesus did. Now, that's countercultural for us, too, isn't it? But nevertheless, here he's hanging out with sinners, they would say. Jesus redefined what family was supposed to look like. It wasn't just blood kin anymore, but Jesus is saying, those who are doing the will of my Father, these are my family. So he's opening up this definition to the spiritual realities of the kingdom of God. This is one way. And then Jesus redefined uh, the way that people understood righteousness. Uh, Jesus put those people who, who thought of themselves as being righteous people, he put them in their place, and he reminded them that God has grace on sinners. In fact, he told them that, that he told the Pharisees that they would not be in first in the line when God is blessing those who have been obedient to him. In fact, those who are turning from their lifestyles of swindling and prostitution, those actually are people who are standing in front line. Totally countercultural to what the people were thinking. Now, James here in this passage is reminding us of a gospel that turns everything upside down, turns everything on its head. Because we see that the gospel is true, he says the poor should boast in their exaltation. 
The poor should boast in their exaltation, and the rich should boast in their humiliation. Do you find that weird? I mean, that's backwards, isn't it? I mean, even for us, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We look at that and we're like, that doesn't make any sense. How's that happening? In James's day, the rich people were considered to be the blessed people. And now here, here a lot of people pre- preaching on TV, we think that also, don't we? The people that are the blessed people are the people that have the Bentleys. The people that are the blessed people are the people that have the big houses. The people that are the blessed people, they have all the stuff because God is showing his favor to them. Well, friends, that's not the case. That's not the case that we find in the scriptures. Jesus says to his disciples, he says to them, he says, it is easier for a camel, I think he's talking about a real camel too, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what were the disciples, what were they, how would they respond to that? They're like, oh, yeah. Well, that makes sense to me. I mean, those, those dirty rich people, you know, they have all of that stuff. And, man, I can see how, that, what you're saying, Jesus, that makes sense to me. No, it's not at all what they said. They said, oh, my goodness. If the rich people can't be saved, we have no hope. How in the world can we be saved? What does Jesus say? He looks at them, he says, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So as Christians, we should be careful of the pitfalls of thinking that Jesus' ways make sense for our American ways. It doesn't just fit directly into the mold that we've made for him. Jesus calls us to a life that is counter to our culture as well. He calls us to be a part of a real, genuine, accountable kind of community. Not just individuals, not just personal Lord and Savior kind of Christianity, but a Christianity that is driven by the gospel in the context of community. That's what he calls us to. He calls us to care about each other more than we care about ourselves. It's not just looking out for number one. Jesus says we have to care about one another. We have to bear one another's burdens. He calls us to give away more than we keep. That's revolutionizing. He calls us to sacrifice our time and energy and abilities so that others can hear the gospel just in the same way as we have. So in this text, what we find here is is a focus on this countercultural identity of Christianity. The most central idea that we find in the passage is that Christians, whether they are rich Christians or poor Christians, they need to view themselves in the same way that God views them. So let's look together at that first uh, verse. First, second point that we're looking at is that the gospel promises us an eternal inheritance. Gospel promises us an eternal inheritance. Look there at verse 9, the first phrase. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, it's important for us to remember the the context of this passage. We've been kind of slowly walking through chapter 1. He's talking in the broader scheme. He's talking about enduring trials. So as Christians endure trials, how should we understand ourselves? How should we understand who we are, our own identity? He says we must remember the importance of our identity if we're going to count it all joy, as he said in verse 2. We're going to remain steadfast through the trial. Now, James is referring to these people 
as brothers. So he's saying, these are my brothers. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. They're a part of the family of God. Now, when we look at this text, there is some disagreement about whether both of these people are Christians or only one of them is a Christian and the other is not a Christian. And I think that James is talking about rich and poor believers because it makes sense with the nouns. It makes sense with the verbs. They're implied in the second half of the verses. Now, in the first phrase, he refers to the brother as lowly. He says that this brother is lowly. He's humble. He's poor. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the, the word is used to describe a person who's not really very significant at all in the world around him. He's a nobody. Nobody cares about him. Nobody thinks of him. Nobody wants him to come and speak at their crusade. He's an absolute nobody. And even to the point that he might be uh, facing opposition because of who he is. He's being persecuted by other people. Now, it makes sense with what James is writing to these people about, doesn't it? The people that he's writing to have been forced out of their homes in Jerusalem. They've been relocated, uh, many of them to Syria, northern Palestine. And most of them are probably struggling just to get food on the table for the kids. They don't have any land. They don't have any real homes. They're like refugees out there trying to make ends meet for their family. And so they don't even have the protection of a larger family structure. They're just out on their own altogether. But James, he wants them to look beyond the trial. He says, look beyond the problems. See the horizon. Look at what God is doing. It's so easy for us to become fixated on the problems and forget to look up. Our schedule is jammed with stuff. We feel like we're about to collapse under the weight of it. Or your best friend has moved away, moved to a different state, and you just feel lonely all the time. Or maybe it's that continuous battle for your health as you grow older. And it seems like pill after pill after pill and trips to the doctor. It's like the doctor's door for you is just a, it's a, a, it's whirling around and you just keep going in it every single day. And you seem like there's no end in sight. And it's in the midst of the trial, it seems safest to focus on the problem instead of focusing on the horizon. And yesterday, Dan Hall and Clancy Dixon um, helped me by running with me in a 5K. Now, I don't know if most of you know that I'm not really a runner. I'm more of a, I, I like to saunter. I like to, uh, I like to casually walk. And many would say that what I did yesterday was that. But nevertheless, I finished. But I know that when I run, one of the things that I do on a regular basis, well, as regular as a basis as it would for me to run on a regular basis, Anyway, is I have this habit of just, I, when I get tired, I begin to look at my feet. It's like one step after another. I'm focusing on my feet because, number one, I don't want to trip and fall. Number two, I feel like if I can focus on those feet, they'll move one after another after another, and eventually something will happen, and they'll have a finish line, and I'll be done. But the truth is, if you lift up your face... If you look out to the horizon and greet the horizon, look toward the goal, the run actually goes a lot better. Because not only are you looking at the horizon, but you're looking at those brothers or those sisters that are next to you, where they're encouraging you. They're, they're encouraging you to continue on, or as Dan put it, soldier on. We have that together, don't we, Dan? 
But regardless, you have to lift up your face. You have to look for where you are going. And friends, in the midst of the trial, it seems safest to look down, to focus on the problem. But we have to look at the goal. We can't just look at the problem. James says to the poor believer, he says to them, look up, look up. And he says to them, boast in your exaltation. So uh, apparently James is taking his cues from the Old Testament. Uh, That passage we just read in the invocation just a few minutes ago, Jeremiah helps us to understand that boasting isn't always bad. It's boasting in the right thing that's important. Remember he said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. So he says, boast in the Lord. So how... How can we boast in the fact that we know God? Well, we first of all, we have to recognize that if we know God, we know God because of the gospel. We're boasting in the fact that God has saved us. God has made us his own children. Now, not boasting in such a way that it makes us look good for choosing God, but boasting in such a way that it it exemplifies the character and goodness and worth of God. That's the kind of boasting. James uses the same word that Paul uses in many different places to talk about this exaltation. In, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is speaking about what has happened to us in Christ. And he says, God, the one who's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, he says, and raised us up with him and seated us with, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So friends, if we're going to endure the trial, no matter what it is, we have to remember that the gospel, it it gives us, it promises us an eternal inheritance. It's a perspective issue. Now, one of the things I want us to look at in this sermon is a couple of case studies. Now, when when we think about stories in the Bible that help us more clearly understand kinds of principles, we want to look at some of those. So the first case study goes with this first idea, and it's from Luke chapter 16. If you can turn there, you can, you can follow with me. Uh, Luke chapter 16, Jesus is telling this story. Now, whether it's a parable or a true story, we don't really know, uh, but this is how it goes. He says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, like, a, like manner, bad things. And now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, 
They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if, you didn't, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, just as a side note, Jesus is talking about the people, the Pharisees, not going to respond to one who rises from the dead. He's talking about himself. Now, thinking about Lazarus, we have a great advantage over Lazarus, don't we? Why? Well, we see the end, the middle, and the beginning of the story. He didn't see all of that. We get to see the entire story, and it gives us a perspective on enduring trial. Now, here, Lazarus, he has endured a horrific trial, Poor, homeless, lowly, humble, dies with open sores, being licked by dogs. But through it all, it is apparent that he was trusting in the Lord. He was placing his faith in God, and that faith was counted as righteousness in similar fashion as Abraham. The promise of inheritance that God has given to each of us should give us a right perspective. So here's a man that endured trial in faith, and yet he received the end reward. So friends, when we're enduring trial, have the right perspective, just like Lazarus. Believe in the goodness and trust in the goodness of God. No matter how difficult the trial is now, God has granted you the right to be a child of his kingdom. So no matter how much it seems like you're giving up in the trial, trust in the Lord that he will make all things right. This is what the disciples were extremely concerned about in Matthew chapter 19. It says that then Peter said in reply to what Jesus was saying about giving things up, he says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So when you think about the trial, you think about the things that it seems like you're giving up during these trials, the things that you're losing. Well, friends, trust in the bigger picture. Trust in the Lord who has promised blessing upon blessing and even eternal life to those who follow him. So if we're going to endure the trial, no matter what the trial might be, we have to remember that the gospel promises us an eternal inheritance. And secondly, we must understand that the gospel demands that we carefully evaluate our pursuits. The gospel demands that we carefully evaluate all of our pursuits. Look at that next section of verses 10 and 11. It says, and the rich, I'm going to implied noun and verb, brother should boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, here's the question that we have to answer. What is humiliating about wealth? Isn't that what he says? Boast in your humiliation. So what is it exactly that is humiliating about having lots of money, about being wealthy? Now, this is, this is countercultural to everything that we understand from our culture, isn't it? 
There's nothing humiliating about being rich in our culture. In fact, it's those people that are people that are well thought of. Those are the people that get the positions. Those are the people that they get everything they want. Those are the people that we look up to, that we see on TV. It doesn't seem like there's anything humiliating about wealth. The American dream is fixated on wealth. The perfect house, the most enjoyable job, the best education, the model family. I mean, wealth, that's what drives capitalism, which is what drives the United States economy. So how can a wealthy person, whether that, that wealth is in financial riches or relational riches or comfort, how can a wealthy person boast in the humiliation of wealth? Well, I think Solomon helps us understand this a little bit in the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, this is what Solomon says. He's, he's looking at everything that has gone on in his life. He's evaluating all of this stuff. And he says, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or or stupid. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. He says, this is vanity. This is vanity. In chapter 5, he goes on, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? He says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beast. For what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and and man has no advantage over the beast. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust. And to dust, he says, all return. So what's the conclusion? He says, the end of the matter is this. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring about every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So a right perspective on wealth is to acknowledge that all of it is just going to be vain. All of it is vanity. All of it is chasing after the wind. All of it is, is quickly gone. Only then will we truly be able to boast in our humiliation? James seems to be borrowing from Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, all flesh is grass, and all beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades with the breath of the Lord, blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. So what is he saying? He's saying the only way that you can find humility in wealth is realizing that the only thing that will ever last is God. The only thing that will last is God and his word. When we recognize that all of our work and all of our striving and all of our collecting and all of our plans will eventually fade into the background of cosmic insignificance and it will do that for the glory of God alone, it's only at that point that you'll be able to boast in the humility of wealth. So, friends, is that your response toward life's pursuits, to the things that you're into? Whether you have lots of money or not, James says that we are like flowers of the grass that soon pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls and its beauty perishes, 
so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And living in America, most of us, we could be labeled the rich man according to the world's standards. So where are you placing your treasure today? Here, in this world, or in the kingdom of Christ? We always think about the bad examples of rich people, don't we? I mean, when we look at the scripture, when I say rich man, who do you think of? The guy that Jesus talked to that was like, eh, I think I'll keep my stuff, right? That's the one I think about. We have that story, the rich man comes to Jesus and and he comes to Jesus and he asks the question that all preachers want to hear, how can I get saved? And what does Jesus say? Well, pray this prayer and, you know, we'll get you baptized and put you in a move group or something like that. No, he doesn't say any of that. He says, well, have you kept the commandments? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I've kept the commandments. All of them from a very young age. And so Jesus says, okay, well, this is the one thing that you lack. And he's like, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready. And he says, go sell everything. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And the guy's like, I think I'm gonna go find a different rabbi. He didn't like that answer, so he leaves. That's usually the rich man. We think about that guy or we think about the guy who, who uh, in the parable, he's a rich man, he has lots of barns, but he gets a lot of stuff, more, more harvest than he was anticipating. So what does he do? Instead of giving some of it away to people that need it, he begins to build bigger barns. He builds barn after barn after barn. Only after he completes all the barns, what happens? He dies. All right, so there's this negative examples of rich men. But I want us to look at a positive example of a rich man. Look in Luke chapter 19. This story is one that we know from childhood. It says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crown, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, came down, and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he is a son of Abraham, meaning he's a son of faith. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now here's a man who is wealthy. I mean, that's what the text says. It says he was a, a chief tax collector and it says he was rich. Here's a man who was extremely wealthy. But notice his response to Jesus. He turns away from the wealth and instead turns to Jesus. He values Jesus more than he values the wealth. Zacchaeus recognized the incomparable value of knowing Jesus and chose Christ and his kingdom over his own earthly kingdom. He's boasting, as it were, in the things that he once got pleasure out of all this stuff, but he just doesn't anymore. Now he gets pleasure out of who Christ is, and he clings to him completely. Friends, we have to evaluate ourselves by the gospel, not by the standard of the world, and the gospel demands that we carefully evaluate all of our pursuits, every single one. So in what ways are you wealthy? Are you, are you putting stock in your job? Are you, are you putting stock in your retirement plan, your friends, your house? 
Are these things the things that are determining the extent of your faithfulness to Christ in his kingdom? Are they limiting you? Are they holding you back? Can you boast in the fact that you're humbled by the vanishing importance of all of your earthly commodities? And does that boasting take the form of radical obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Friends, these verses are tied to James' overarching idea of enduring trials. James is telling us in chapter one that we must not be that, that double-minded Christian, like, like the wave of the, of the sea that's being tossed about. We can't be double-minded. Let's be honest, money is one of those things that makes us double-minded. Money is one of those things. Money and the things that money can buy are so enticing to us. There are so many things that we want, so alluring that it can put our wholehearted, sincere faith in Jesus Christ in jeopardy. And it ought to remind us of the words of Jesus when he said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Friends, let us strive to serve the one master, the one who has given to us life eternal and free. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for this word that you've given to us through James. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as a people that we would respond in faith, trusting in what you have done through Christ to draw us to yourself. Lord, help us to be a people that reflect, even this morning, on the larger perspective, the fact that you have promised to give us an eternal inheritance, a life that never fades, a life with you. You've made us heirs. Father, help us to be people who reflect on your goodness. And help us to be a people that evaluate our lives right now. We would look at all of the pursuits in our life and we would examine them to see whether or not they fit in with a life that is countercultural to the things of this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name.